In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. It's so great to see you here this, this morning. I don't know if you had a challenge getting here. If you did, thank you for persevering. Um, I, at eight for the eight o'clock service, I drove around downtown for half an hour trying to find a place. And when we started the eight o'clock service, there were more of us up here than there were in the congregation. And people filtered in as time went on. Um, it seems like um, our Isaiah 40 passage today, its conclusion is, is very apt for the weekend that we've had. Yesterday's marathon trials, today's little run. And then those of us who, are, who had to persevere to get here, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall run and not be weary. Oh, yeah. They shall walk and not faint. I don't know how many people just turned around and drove home. I Seriously, I had half a thought to just go home myself this morning. So thanks for being here. May God bless you for being here. Today I want to offer, well, hopefully nuggets <clears throat> from uh, three of today's four passages. First remark, God's life manifest, Jesus, pushes back the night. Second, with Jesus from Psalm 147, we push back the night with praise. And then three, with Jesus from Isaiah 40, we push back the night by just refusing to quit. First, God's life manifests pushes back the night. Um, I begin with a reminder, because Mark's gospel begins in the wilderness. Early Christians associated his gospel with the lion, the powerful king, so it was thought, of the wild places. Accordingly, it only takes a little imagination to appreciate why C.S. Lewis would cast his Christ figure as a lion, Aslan, who is not safe, but is good. That's Mark's Christ. Skipping right over Matthew's and Luke's birth narratives and John's soaring prologue, Mark takes us directly to Jesus' baptism and his temptation, and then to the launch of Jesus' mission. Jesus begins his ministry by gathering disciples, Simon and Andrew, James and John, to witness his power to deliver. And then he begins his powerful acts of deliverance as he frees from physical and oppression, physical and psychic oppression, a man in the thrall of demonic forces. And in today's gospel, like a mighty lion, Jesus fights back the fever of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, then cures many who are sick with various diseases as the whole town comes to him. And then after a prayer vigil, he is ready to carry on his conquest of sin and sickness and evil. As our gospel reading today concludes, let us go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. All of this on the way to offering his life a ransom for many. The redeeming lion is on the loose. And in his wake, we are called to stand against the night as well. And, and really, what manifestations of the night are there all around us? Disease, 
And many of us are called into the medical field to do what we can. Many of us are called to aggressive prayer ministry to resist the night. How many of us know people whose lives have been taken out by drugs? How many of us have had to fight addictions? The toxicity that's all around us in discourse, online and in person. War. If you are a person of color, the sense that the deck is always stacked against you. If you're a woman, the chances are that you have been used, abused, violated, at least taken for granted and made to feel like your voice doesn't count. The night is dark. and We're called to be a people representing the light of Christ. Then with, with Christ, with Jesus, we push back the night by praise. And here I offer three smaller points from Psalm 147. It's a beautiful psalm. First, notice the therapy of worship. Consider verse 1, and it's, it's the, the text is in your bulletin if you want to take a quick look. I'm not going to be doing a, a real deep dive here, but consider verse 1. Hallelujah, how good it is to sing praises to our God, how pleasant it is to honor him with praise. Now consider verse 7. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make music to our God upon the harp. Uh, my friend in college blew up a seminar conversation about an angry Marxist theologian that we were reading who was contending that the best way to pray these days is with a gun in your hand. And she, she was asked her opinion of the book, and she said, well, I don't know, there's, there's no joy in it. There's nothing here to sing about. And at first I was kind of embarrassed because I felt like people like her and I were, we're supposed to show how people like us, we're also really concerned about injustice and making things right. And, but then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, she's got a point. We believe that in the face of injustice, we stand up and say no, but we sing our way to the martyrs, to the martyrs' beer if we have to. We know that there's more going on than just what is here. And we know that Christ is king of the universe and we sing about him and his rule no matter what. Worship, secondly, expands our imaginations. Look at verse 4. He counts the numbers of the stars and calls them all by name. How vast the heavens are, how, how mysterious the origins of it all. And listen, nobody has a better answer for the question of where did it all come from? How did it all come to be than this book which says, and God said, let there be. And there was. And nobody has a better word for the future of it all than our song. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother. He's got you and me, sister. Because this book gives us this story to tell in song. See verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And not infrequently, we sing that we sing that refrain to a tune that Ben Lane said it in our psalms. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds, we sing. In verse 6, the Lord lifts up the lowly, but casts the wicked to the ground. 
Worship helps push back the night with soul therapy because worship expands our imaginations and sings redemption's song. Worship puts our hearts in sync with our creator and our recreator, the, the namer of the stars and the renamer of the wounded, the broken, the shamed. It calls them confidence, joyfulness, overcoming one, friend of God, gives them new names. And then third, I really only had two points under worship, so erase, fast forward, back again. Uh, In the whole message, third point, with Jesus, we push back the night by just refusing to quit. Notice again these fantastic words at the end of Isaiah 40. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He gives power to the faint and strengthens the the powerless. Just when you're ready to give up. By a happy work of providence, this week we got to read in the daily office, Hebrews chapter 11, in Hebrews chapter 12, and I found myself ruminating on, on the lessons there. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11 catalogs the way hope in the resurrection had sustained, fortified, and propelled hero after hero of the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 34. Faith enabled some to achieve great things for God's kingdom. David and Gideon and the like. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 through 38, faith enables others not to succumb to withering attacks and discouraging defeats, to absorb them, but not be, not be broken by them. He's referring to the Maccabean martyrs of the mid-second century B.C. and to Isaiah according to Jewish tradition, sawn in half. No victory was final, nor was any defeat. All these Old Testament greats, says the writer to the Hebrews, were awaiting what we have been privileged to see, Christ's victory over death for us and in us. Looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God, pictured in our stained glass over the altar. Earlier in his tract, the writer has noted that while we do not see humans presently enjoying the dominion for which we were made, and we were, but we do see Jesus He has reclaimed for humans the dignity we lost at the fall. By virtue of his sharing our humanity and by virtue of his death for us, Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor in advance of our sharing in that glory and honor. By his death and resurrection, Jesus, says the writer to the Hebrews at the end of chapter 2, says, he has destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free us from all who all our lives were held 
in slavery by the fear of death. The result, the so what, is that we can embrace a certain fearlessness in the face of external hostility, an unyielding determination to resist an internal drift toward waywardness, and a resolute refusal to heed Sloth's siren call to drop out of the race. We can do all this because we see Jesus traveling alongside us, our pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, urging us, come on, stay with me, I'll get you home. And above it all, of course, are those who've already run the race and they're cheering us on as well. In closing, I mention one more recent hero, hero of the faith who stood tall when he could have dropped out. Absalom Jones. Absalom Jones's um, celebration is February 13th, which is a week from Tuesday. But we're doing it today because I'm not in the pulpit next Sunday and I want to talk about Absalom Jones. Absalom Jones did not give up on the church when he had every reason to do so. Born to a Delaware slaver in 1746, Absalom taught himself to read using the New Testament. At age 16, he was sold to a Philadelphia merchant who happened to be an Episcopalian. Absalom was allowed to get a Quaker education. He worked to purchase his wife's and his own freedom, which his owner was begrudging about giving him until, or granting him, until he became convinced that the abolitionists were right. Now, in the meantime, the evangelical Methodist movement, yay, Methodists, the, the evangelical Methodist movement was having a great impact on the Philadelphia area at the time, and Absalom found spiritual life there. He was licensed to preach in the Methodist church, yay, but the vestry decided that while it was okay for Absalom to stand in the pulpit, it was not okay for him and his fellow black believers to pray alongside white congregants in the nave. Boo! And so, when they were informed of their need to pray upstairs in the balcony, Absalom and his fellow black believers said, we're leaving. I don't know if you've ever been hurt by the church, but people who've been hurt by the church, often, they're just gone. And you never see him again. It wasn't that way with Absalom. He didn't just flip the table and, said, and say, see you later. He didn't give up on the church, though he had every reason to. Eventually, Absalom returned to the Episcopal church and became ordained as the Episcopal church's first black priest. And then throughout his career, until his death in 1818, Absalom Jones worked fiercely to defend the gospel and the freedom the gospel promises for every man and woman, regardless of their color. 
Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. Don't give up. Jesus came to push back the, back the night. He invites us to a life of worship along with him and his praise to the Father as we, as we honor the one who names the stars and rena renames wounded and broken people and who gives us the strength to carry on. I close with this collect. Almighty God, you have surrounded us with a great cloud of witnesses. Grant that we, encouraged by the good example of the servants who have gone before, that we may persevere in running the race that is set before us, until at last we may with him, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the saints that are in his train, attain to your eternal joy through Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.